Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. We continue our Linton podcast series today by considering the spiritual practice of remembering with historian and author Margaret Bendrith. The promise of modernity was progress, and so our default orientation is often to the present and future and away from the past, which can be seen as either irrelevant or even benighted. But it is uncanny how often the Bible instructs us to remember the great story, to meditate upon it, ponder it, write it in our heart, dwell on it, and never forget. In this conversation, Margaret Bender invites us to reflect on our own stories, to see our lives as the product of a long choosing, linked to the generations that have come before, and then to be willing to examine our family and spiritual histories as part of knowing ourself and our place in God's stories. And while she acknowledges the potential for discomfort in looking back, Bendrith encourages us to a posture of righteous remembrance, extending the charity to our ancestors that we hope will be extended to us. And in doing so, we open up the door to healing not only of our own past, but also to gaining access to resources and wisdom from previous generations. May this conversation inspire you to reflect on your own history and its place within the great story. With that, here's today's conversation. So let's just dive right in. Your your wonderful book both asserts and is sort of based on the idea that, I think this is in your words, remembering is an act with spiritual meaning and the past tense is essential to our language of faith. What is it that you mean when you talk about remembering and what's the spiritual or religious significance of memory? You know, we, ha- we live in an age of memoir and every, you know, everyone um, has a story to tell and we're all so interested in individual people's lives. Um, but this book was really written for um, people in groups, mm-hmm. particularly churches and other institutions that don't quite know who they are. And so memory, you know, we, we use the word remember, it's, you know, bringing you know, the members back together that are separated. It's such an intrinsic part of the Christian and Jewish tradition. When you even look at what kinds, you know, the, 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 what's included in the Bible, but the idea that we are all creatures of space and time and that the great act of sacrifice of Christ coming into the, the world as we remember at this time is coming into time and space and our finitude. And so maybe that's a you know, place to start the rest of our conversation. Yeah, well, let's, let's dig in because at one point you even said that memory requires a community. So why do we need a community to remember well? Well, I mean, uh, of course, we're all well aware that memory is incredibly subjective and that, uh, you know, what I remember, I can be told that I went up in a hot air balloon as a child and someone can doctor a picture and I will believe it. You know, there are studies that show how subjective our memories are. But, you know, I think there's so many testimonies from history and from all around us 
of what happens when people lose their history. And in the book, I actually used a couple of examples of Native Americans and African Americans brought over here as slaves, that when people are forcibly cut off from their past, from their stories, but from the stories of their ancestors and the community that created them, there are tremendous moral, but also psychological um, and spiritual, you know, catastrophes that result from that. And when, you know, I don't say those stories to use those as examples to be you know, politically correct or anything, I think that we are all in danger of losing our stories, our community stories, our larger identity. And, you know, that's not just kind of a personal ache or pain, that's a, a tear in the fabric of, of, of who we all are. You know, you, uh, you quote, made, have this wonderful quote from Miroslav Volf, which sort of <laughs> describes a uh, the way that the communal aspect of memory, I'm going to uh, quote you quoting Miroslav here. Uh, you said, we experience time the way we hear a beautiful note from the cello. Mm -hmm. It may sound like a single pitch, but in reality, it's a complex tone, including other voices from the strings, half length, fourth length, eighth length, and so on. It's similar with the music of our lives. At any given time, we do not hear only the simple solitary note of the present, rather in that present resonate many sounds of past actualities and future possibilities. Mm -hmm. This is how our present acquires depth. Uh, so in other words, our present day lives are in some ways constantly echoing those of others around us, both mm -hmm. in the past and the, the future. Uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts in that when we do kind of experience, whether it's a civic or communal amnesia, is there kind of a, a hollowing out or a decrease in density in our own interiority there? Or is the, are the effects felt mostly on a communal level? Oh, I, you know, I absolutely um, believe that, you know, that history makes you a thicker, fuller person. And as a believer, you know, you, you have, first of all, all the resources that are available to you in the Christian tradition. You know, you just don't have to read what's in the latest magazine. You can, you know, you can delve into the lives of others and their insights, which are, you know, I think in it, they lived in ages before there was social media and television, and they had perhaps more time um, to reflect or ability to reflect than we do. So those those are resources that we have. But you know, you think about who you are, who you are, and the fact that you are. As I, I love the the idea of a long. We are the product of a long choosing, and that. You know, the fact that I am here today and you're you are here today was all of our, this is from Wendell Berry's wonderful book, Remembering, that we are all here because so, thousands of other people have made choices about who they were going to marry, who they were going to live, what they cared about, and that we are literally the product of, uh, you know, of the all those choices that are being made by, you know, thousands of years before we were born. 
So one of the themes that your book explores, which I think is quite interesting, is that uh, you argue that in many ways, modernity has shaped some of our assumptions, both about time, community, but also memory, uh, that would be quite foreign to our ancestors and in some ways disconnected us from them. Yeah. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what some of those modern assumptions are that perhaps have, have cut us off from better understanding what has happened before or, or alienated from us from our past in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, partly wrote this book because I was in conversations, which many of you probably in the audience are familiar with about faith and history. And, you know, can Christians, you know, is there such thing as a Christian history? And what do we as Christian scholars, you know, however we define that, contribute to our profession, to the discipline? And, you know, I think those are worthwhile conversations, but as a teacher, as, a, you know, a church member, as the spouse of a pastor, you know, as a person living in the world, I think the question that came to me was more, why should I care at all about the past? What, it doesn't even matter. You know, and of course, these are conversations that we're having across our, our, our society, you know, intensely today. I wasn't there. Why does it matter? And we have this sense of, of disconnectedness. Uh, one author described it, we're stranded in the present. And so, you know, I realized that what people really need to understand, and this is something that historians kind of take for granted, I needed to figure out a way to spell it out, is we look at the past as, first of all, behind us, it's back there or down the ladder and we're climbing upwards, and that it, uh, you know, that we are ahead of the past, we are above the past, we are more enlightened. I mean, we hear this all the time. Thank goodness we've come so far and we've made this progress. We're not benighted like those people. And we, you know, we just have a broader perspective. That's really a product of how we have constructed the idea of the past in our minds, you know, and that it, by, by inference, the past is alien from us. It's those people. It's another world. And also, in a sense, it's an imagined world. It's not real. And we can kind of trivialize or manipulate or talk about those people in any way we want, because, you know, it's it's not as real, as intelligent and smart. I mean, I used to always tell my students, you know, they actually saw things in full color because all the pictures in my American history class were in black and white. And, you know, students need to realize these are real people who were as morally complex as every one of us is um, and certainly grappled with many of the same things. Yeah. So I want to ask you about something you said earlier, which is the challenges we face with wrestling with and coming to terms with our past. And a fair amount of your book deals with something that you call righteous remembrance and, you know, kind of granting our ancestors some of the same charity judgment space that we would hope to have ourselves. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, oh, what you see is sort of comprising a sense of righteous remembrance towards the sometimes mysterious past. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, and I, 
and I realized this when I was working at the library in these ancient archives, or ancient for US standards anyway, is a feeling of reverence. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when it struck me, I was showing a group of high schoolers, you know, uh, some uh, complicated, you know, a class of high schoolers who'd come to the library, you know, forcibly. And I um, took them up to the rare book room and I pulled out a book. I can't remember what it was. It was hundreds of years old. And I just, you know, there were just a couple kids in that group who started, who you could see a look of awe on their faces. And I thought they get it. I feel a sense of awe when I am, you know, holding anything that's been passed through the hands of other people, you know, literally the books in that rare book room. I mean, there was one, you know, that uh, was owned by a sailor who fought with Nelson at Trafalgar. I mean, it, you know, you knew all that these books had seen, all the people that they had affected this, you know, they, these kinds of historical objects, you know, they point us towards the unseen, towards people that we can no longer see or talk to. And that's the definition of a holy object, you know, that it points you towards the unseen, towards something else. So these are not just our sources. I think that, you know, one place to begin is just having a certain amount of awe and reverence for things that are old, just because of you know that that they are that 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 kind of object. I also talk about history for grown-ups, and in this in particular, you know, I observed because a lot of my job was going to church converse, church congregations. You know, and in New England, they tend to be very very old, and they have a lot of baggage. And you know, the the church the church fights up here are usually about changing the picture on the cover of the bulletin you know it's not a doctrinal or it's about something you know you can't do that because it's very old and this is the way we've always had it and then people would have you know questions about can we get you know sell the communion silver or something like that well what it really comes down to in some ways is that you're acting as if your ancestors are either terribly terribly fragile not very self-aware or just mean parents who are out to get you if you make a mistake. And, you know, part of this righteous remembering is, you know, having the courage to be in conversation with them, to, you know, to, you know, not just respect and revere what they have to say, but say, I don't agree with that. And here's why. And, you know, that's another form of respect and reverence to be able to to, you know, to maintain that conversation as you would with a peer, another grown up. So it, it's hard for any of us to practice what we have a hard time envisioning. So I'd love to hear from you what, what a vibrant Christian remembering might look like. And then sort of related to that, you know, whether there are practices or habits that you recommend uh, for cultivating such a, a Christian remembering. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I walk a lot. I think a lot of historians are walkers. We just like narrative. You know, we like straight, we like follow lines, but I walk a lot. And there is something that happens when you're walking down a street that you've driven on many, many times. It used to, boy, this is a lot steeper than I, it was when I was driving my car or, you know, 
what is that? You know, my, my husband had a church in an old New England community and my kids and I used to, you know, walk by this one little monument, you know, all the time we're always in a hurry. I stopped and it <laughs> was the citizens of the town thanking the prime minister for repealing the Stamp Act. I'm like, oh, it's just there. Um, but it is a way of meditating on who laid out the street. I wonder, you know, what it looked like when they built that house or I, you know, what the view, this is the same view when I'm, you know, on the top of a hill in the woods near my house that someone looked at out at the 17th century, the 10th century, you know, just having respect for all the layers of people who have been and the gratitude uh, and frustration for what they've given me. But one of the big concerns that I had when I was writing the book, and I still have, I was really hoping that it would encourage communities of faith to come up with liturgy, ritual, some way of honoring the communion of saints, you know, all the people, you know, it's not just the people who are alive that are a member of your church, it's all of you, if you take Hebrews 11 and 12 seriously. And so, you know, what are some of the, the easy rituals? I, you know, when the, when the child is baptized, you know, a lot of times the, you know, they pat, they, you know, take the baby up and down the aisle and everybody gets to look at it. Well, the ancestors, you know, in a way they're there too. You know, is there a way to include them, you know, in the call to worship, you know, in the, the celebration of communion, in the benediction, you know, not in kind of, you know, weird, uh, stilted, spooky kind of ways, but just simple rituals. So I'll, I'll give you one example of uh, one that, that's my favorite. There was, you know, churches in particular, they all have their story. Oh yeah, you know, we were this, we were that, you know, and you, you know, read their records and find out that's nah, not really true, but people, you know, the story gets passed on of who we are and why that minister was, you know, so wonderful or so awful. So there was a congregation that they told their story that there was at the time a group of divisive malcontents who um, were going to split the church and um, fortunately left. And so they always viewed themselves as kind of a righteous remnant. You know, thank goodness that, you know, that we were able to carry on the faith while those divisive people left. Well, you know, churches usually remember their history every 50 years, you know, when there's an anniversary and there's a, you know, a church supper and all these other things that happen. Someone actually read you know, the, the records, they were not the righteous remnants. They were the kicker outers. They kicked those people out of the church. And so it immediately altered their sense of who they were. And so they developed this little ritual in a church meeting, you know, if it was starting to get hot. If people were starting to disagree, someone would just quietly without saying anything, go over to, to uh, the door and slam it. You know, and that's, that's a ritual. All they had was a reminder, you know what, you did that to other people and you could do it again. That's who you are. So, you know, I, I think there's so many creative ways that communities can engage with their ancestors instead of this kind of, you know, lists of pastors or when we did that particular church building project uh, that, you know, I really would hope to see because I, I find that it gives people 
um, you know, if you're interested in church renewal and church vitality, having a story, you know, that you're not just kind of generic Protestants or something, you are this. And these were the fascinating people that, you know, good and bad that created you. I'd love to go to a church like that. People, you know, are proud and excited and sobered and humbled and, you know, inspired by that. Thanks so much for joining us in this Lenten journey exploring spiritual practices. To listen to this or any of our conversations in full, please visit our website at ttf.org.